Welcome back to a special impeachment bonus episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka with Professor Akhil Amar, as always. A little over a day ago, we gave you what we hope was a timely podcast discussing issues related to the currently ongoing impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Now, we've been alluding to our plan to bring prominent and relevant guests on the podcast. The impeachment, we thought, was important enough that we should accelerate this plan and bring a guest expert on impeachment to join us. Now, the vote at the end of the trial, as we noted last time, may ultimately be less about the merits of the case than about its constitutionality. Some Republican senators maintain that because Trump is no longer president, the entire trial is somehow constitutionally illegitimate. Akil, as you heard in our last podcast, disagrees, as do most scholars of the Constitution, but not all. Now, one of our upcoming guests is the great Nina Totenberg from NPR, and she teed up some of this very succinctly in a five-minute segment that I'm going to play for you in a moment. Remarkably, everyone here is connected to Professor Amar and our podcast. Nina Totenberg has agreed to be a guest. Brian Kalt is Professor Amar's former student and co-author. Peter Keisler is a dear friend of Akil's, as well as a Yale College and Yale Law School classmate and faithful correspondent of his. Akil himself is in this segment. And as always, Nina Totenberg brilliantly presents and summarizes many of the main issues surrounding this impeachment. Finally, Philip Bobbitt is Akil's longstanding co-teacher and our guest today. So here's Nina teeing all this up for us. A constitutional law professor whose work is cited extensively by Trump's lawyers in their impeachment defense brief says his work has been seriously misrepresented. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports. The seminal article about impeachment of a former president was written in 2001 by Michigan State University legal scholar Brian Kalt. He is cited 15 times in the Trump brief, often for the proposition that the Senate does not have the authority under the Constitution to try an impeached ex-president. The problem is that Kalt, in his book-length law review article, concluded that, on balance, the historical evidence is against the president's argument. The worst part is the three places where they said, I said something when in fact I said the opposite. Kalt argues that impeachment is about more than removal. It's about accountability and deterrence. The framers worried about people abusing their power to keep themselves in office. The point is the timing of the conduct, not the timing of the legal proceedings. Kalt is among more than 170 leading constitutional scholars, liberal and conservative, who have formally weighed in on this issue, telling the Senate that contrary to Trump's assertion, it does have the authority to try an ex-president. There are relatively few scholars on the other side. The most respected by far is Columbia law professor Philip Bobbitt, co-author of Impeachment, a Handbook. And if you look at the Federalist Papers, getting the person out of office is the object. But those who argue for the Senate trial contend that it makes no sense to allow a president who commits serious offenses in the final weeks or months in office and who is impeached by the House of Representatives while he is in office to escape Senate trial. Here's Yale Law Professor Akhil Amar. You want to give someone a get-out-of-jail-free card at the end of the administration so they can do anything uh, they like and, and be immune from the high court of impeachment? The scholars point to precedents both ways. 
former Senator William Blount, was expelled from the Senate in 1797 and still impeached and tried afterwards by a Senate that included some of the founders. In 1876, Secretary of War William Belknap, who resigned just minutes before his impeachment, was still tried by the Senate. In both cases, the Senate voted it had the authority to hold a trial, but failed to amass the necessary two-thirds vote for conviction. If there is a precedent the other way, it's President Nixon, who resigned rather than face certain impeachment in the House and conviction in the Senate. But after he left office, there was no attempt to revive the impeachment proceedings. There's another legal defense the Trump lawyers are pushing hard. They contend that a Senate trial and conviction would violate his free speech rights, the unsupported idea that because Mr. Trump was an elected official, he has fewer rights under the First Amendment than anyone else, is sophistry, they say. And they contend that nothing Trump said on January 6th or before was any different than what Democratic members of the House said in urging on Black Lives Matter protesters. Not so, says Peter Keisler, a conservative Republican who served as acting attorney general in the George W. Bush administration. The First Amendment's protection of freedom of speech simply doesn't apply to impeachment. This isn't a criminal prosecution which seeks to render someone's speech illegal. Trump, he says, is entitled to hold whatever opinions he wants and to express them. But he's not entitled to assert a First Amendment defense against removal or disqualification from office. Take, for example, the incendiary speech that the Supreme Court upheld in 1969 as constitutionally protected from prosecution. The speech, given by a Ku Klux Klan leader, called for black citizens to be sent to Africa and Jewish Americans to be sent to Israel. While the Supreme Court threw out the criminal prosecution, Keisler says those same opinions would nonetheless be grounds for impeachment and conviction if uttered by a president. Suppose, asks Keisler, that a president just announced publicly, I intend to use my office for personal profit, and I don't regard myself as bound by the Constitution. Those are speech activities. Those are all protected from criminal prosecution. But of course, any president who did or said such things could and should be removed from office. Indeed, if convicted, the worst that could happen to such a president would be that the Senate could, by majority vote, ban him from future federal office. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Okay. So as you've just heard, the leading academic skeptic of these Senate proceedings is Philip Bobbitt. McKeel's longstanding co-teacher and colleague. Professor Bobbitt has, as you will now hear, importantly and dramatically modified his position to a far more moderate one. You will hear this transformation for yourself for the first time anywhere on this podcast. For con law geeks, this is a big deal. So it's a great pleasure for me to welcome uh, Professor Philip Bobbitt, who's a uh, leading constitutional scholar and teacher. Uh, a distinguished public servant, and a renowned author. Uh, professor Bobbitt is currently the Herbert Wexler Professor of Federal Jurisprudence at Columbia Law School, where he's taught since 2007, as well as a distinguished senior lecturer at the University of Texas School of Law. Professor Bobbitt attended Princeton University and Yale Law School, and then received his PhD from Oxford. Um, he then clerked for Judge uh, Henry Friendly, 
uh, on the United States Court of Appeals in the Second Circuit. Um, his early work included the book Constitutional Fate, Theory of the Constitution, which was described by Professor Amar in 1994 as, quote, one of a handful of truly towering works of constitutional theory in the last half century, unquote. Um, later, he's, uh, he's been the author of 10 books, including the award-winning The Shield of Achilles, War, Peace, and the Course of History, which proudly adorns my bookshelf. Um, and most recently, um, he's written a new edition of uh, his book, Impeachment, a Handbook, originally written in 1974 with the great Charles Black. Um, Professor Bobbitt also has been a public servant, serving in the federal government through seven presidential administrations with a wide range of, of posts, which I will include on our website rather than use his precious time to go through all this now. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the Royal Historical Society and a former trustee of Princeton University. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Bobbitt to our podcast. Great to be here, Andy. Thank you for having me. It, it, it's a pleasure and an honor. So we want to talk about impeachment. It's the subject of the, du jour. And um, yesterday, the Senate voted uh, with a majority vote, though not a two-thirds vote, um, to conduct the trial, um, notwithstanding objections based on the fact that President Trump is, no, is now former President Trump. So um, I understand that you and Akil are on opposite sides of this issue. Um, so why don't you, if you don't mind, give us the, uh, you know, the basics of your point of view, and then we'll let you two go at it. Okay. My uh, view is pretty uh, straightforward. It's true that I think there are uh, murky questions around precedents. I don't think there's strong or decisive precedents either way. There are <clears throat> prudential questions that are are uh, hard to answer in this case because there's so much about about the future and so much about politics, not so much the prudential concerns that a court would typically have in a court case. But I think the uh, Akhil and I may differ on this. I think the history is on the side of not trying a private person, even if he has at some time in his lifetime been a officer. But for me, the strongest arguments are, are text. And when passions run as high as they do, we want to make certain that we turn square corners on many issues, maybe most uh, disputed issues. The text is ambiguous. There are competing texts. The way we read the text is not, uh, has, has changed. Our values and culture have changed. But here, the text is, uh, I think, crystal clear. Uh, Article uh, 1 gives the Senate the sole power to try impeachments. And the House is given the sole power to bring an impeachment. But Article 2 gives us the grounds for impeachment and who may be impeached. And if I can uh, just... Uh, I suppose most people know this by uh, know this by heart by now, but let me just repeat the passage from Article Two: The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States 
shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, in Donald Trump's case, he was validly uh, impeached, and richly so in my view, for the high crime and misdemeanor of preventing, uh, hindering, and delaying the execution of the uh, electoral count inciting an insurrection or insurrectionary activity to accomplish that purpose. It may be, and I'd like to discuss this with you and Akil, uh, that he can be tried because he has been validly impeached. And I think we're learning a lot, even uh, in the trial that has taken place thus far, that's very valuable for uh, our country's future and our understanding of what's happened. But what cannot happen, in my view, is that Donald Trump, who is no longer president, was never vice president, and cannot be said to be a civil officer, he cannot be convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors. The class of persons who are subject to that uh, uh, grounds for sanction, whatever the sanctions may be, whether they're removal or disqualification, are limited to president, vice president, and all civil officers. And I think that's the, the thing that sort of sticks in my craw. I don't think it is wise to brush that aside, although ingenious and sometimes not so ingenious arguments are made to do so, to get at Donald Trump. It would be his final triumph if he got good people, reasonable, thoughtful, reflective, patriotic people, to push down uh, a barrier of that kind just to get at it. So, Philip, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, our audience may not know that you, you and I uh, have co-taught together for probably more than a dozen years now. We're like an old married couple. Sometimes we complete each other's sentences. Um, and we almost always agree, in part because you taught me how to do constitutional law. Um, uh, I uh, think the education is a it's going the other way these days. Um, but um, here's where we do disagree. But actually, this conversation is helpful because I think the disagreement is much narrower than even I understood before and maybe than the public understands because you're saying now that the trial can and indeed should go forward, that, that the trial is completely valid. What happens at the end of the trial, you know, uh, we can talk about, but nothing wrong with the Senate trying Donald Trump, even though he's no longer president. And here's a text that I'll toss out, and you um, had um, uh, um, um, mentioned it, that, the, that the, uh, this is in Article 1, Section 3, that, um, that the, the, the Senate... Um, uh, ha shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. And you and I agree, he was validly impeached while a president, and, and the Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments. So, so you and I are in agreement that this trial is proper, right? I think so, and, I, and having watched the testimony, uh, which is riveting, uh, I think it's been a very healthy thing. Great, because I honestly, Philip, and you and I have talked a lot. I'm not sure I understood that that was your position. Um, uh, 
did you say that clearly? I'm not trying to play a gotcha game. Did you say that very clearly in any of the pieces that you've written thus far? Because I'm hoping maybe you didn't. And then we're going to break news with this podcast. Uh, uh, an important <laughs> no, clarification of your position. I haven't said that. To tell you the truth, I really hadn't thought much about it. I, I felt that he could be validly impeached because he, the impeachment uh, resolution was uh, tabled and uh, adopted while he was still president. I, I thought that he could not be convicted, uh, but I didn't really give much thought to the trial. And having seen it today, uh, I think that it's it's quite important. And it also, I think, will have other salutary effects besides impeachment. It tees up uh, resolutions of censure. And frankly, uh, I think it, it provides a factual predicate for criminal prosecution, something wow. that the country, I think, would have been quite allergic to before this uh, detailed and, to my mind, overwhelming uh, case against the president presented by the House managers. So we're going to get to censure in a bit. Um, and I know Andy wants to uh, uh, jump in as well. So I, I may push you a bit on censure. But honestly, Philip, because, you know, our audience doesn't know, but you and I have gone back and forth on this a lot um, on the phone and in email. And I honestly didn't understand that this was your position, that the trial was okay. That's great. We're going to, this is going to be news on our podcast that, 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 that Philip Bobbitt now says that, that at least the trial is okay. Because as you know, I've never been that gung-ho on disqualification. He can't be removed. He's already been removed. I've never right. been very gung-ho on disqualification um, for prudential and structural considerations. I don't love disfranchising his, his supporters. Um, I think that could backfire. In the op-ed that Andy and I uh, did in the New York Daily News, we actually poured some cold water on disqualification. For us, it was really about the, 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 the judgment, and you and I might disagree about whether there can even be a judgment, but you're saying, well, maybe we could call it censure or something like that. I'm not so sure that that's the the best thing to call it, but but we are agreed that the trial itself should occur, and and Andy and I said it should be a seminar for the, the senators and the American people, and you're agreeing with us about all of that, because I actually thought that actually the folks who want to shut it down were citing you preeminently above everyone else um, in favor of a shutdown of, of the, the proceeding, and you're here to tell um, the world via, you know, our pod, our little podcast, that that's not your current position and your, 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 your considered position. You know, to be honest, Akil, I really hadn't thought about it. Uh, I felt it was clear that he couldn't be convicted and clear that he could be impeached, and that was really what mm -hmm. uh, what I believed. And and uh, as you know, uh, took as a as a very minority position. Yes, a very brave position because you're not a Republican, you're not a Trumpist, um, you're a constitutionalist. You're standing up and and felt because. I actually am more on the other side, and there, and the and the 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 pack, the crowd is you know at my back, you know, supporting me, uh, and 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 you are standing almost alone or in a small group against that. And and Philip, even though I don't agree with you on all this stuff, it's a brave position, and I really admire you for it. And you and well, you know, I've told you that privately, but I I want our audience to know that too. So as a uh, as a non lawyer. Um, but an interested observer. Um, I find your, your uh, emphasis on Article 2, Section 4, to be very interesting, given that you've granted now 
that the trial can take place because it seems to me that with the trial taking place, the focus is not so much on the president, but rather on Congress. What are Congress's rights um, at this point? And that's more addressed in Article 1. Article 2, if we look at it, it just talks about who can be removed. And I think we can all agree that the president cannot be removed because he's not president. So he can't, so Donald Trump can't be removed at this point. So I don't see why Congress executing their lawful rights to find uh, former President Trump guilty or disqualify him from office uh, holding in the future would be a violation of, of what Article One empowers them to do. Um, and I don't see anything in Article Two that would prevent them from, from executing that power. Executing the power to convict uh, Andy or just to try? Well, to, um, to try to convict and then to, uh, to carry out the sentences that they are permitted to do in Article One. Yeah, well, I think the problem is that <clears throat> Article 2 sets some very strict limits on two matters, one of which you mentioned, one of which I know you know, but I'm, I'm just going to mm -hmm. uh, underscore. The first one, as I've, you and I have been saying, is uh, who can be convicted? Uh, private persons can't be convicted. And we're all in agreement we on that, completely. We know that not just, not just from Article 2, we also know it from the Bill of Attainder Clause. Mm -hmm. legislatures can't convict private parties. It's been a source of some frustration to me that so many people in this debate have cited British practice where private persons could be uh, tried by, the, by Parliament before the House of Lords because that is a practice that the framers were dead set against. Agreed. Amen. A a amen. A against private persons Amen. And former person. a amen. The and Earl so of Stratford. When say, this was the British practice. End of story. I, I, uh, I become very inflamed. Now, the reason why Article 2 is so relevant is that, unlike Article 1, it tells you who can be, who can be uh, impeached and convicted and on what grounds. And if you were to remove... Uh, the constraints of Article 2, Section 4, with respect to who can be tried, and say, oh, well, look, uh, sorry, who can be convicted, and say, oh, well, look, the Senate can try these cases. Of course they can convict if they can try. You also would be erasing the grounds for conviction. The word conviction say, oh, appears oh, in, in Section 4. You're right. The conviction appears in Section 4, and that's a really interesting you know, textual the, the, point. The, the grounds for conviction reason bribery or high crimes and misdemeanors would be then what Gerald Ford once said, I, I think to his later regret, that the grounds for impeachment and conviction were whatever the House wanted them to be. And when we've got moved from Article 2, Section 4's restrictions to anybody can be uh, prosecuted or any former person can be prosecuted to for any reason, We've really, we've really knocked over uh, what is a, a, a pretty formidable ring fence that the framers were quite careful to erect about a very, very unusual power. We agree. Um, uh, limits on who can be uh, impeached uh, and for what 
and with what consequences. Those are three limits that actually are very much in, in Article 2. So I'm going to push back on you on the two things. So, so we've, we further narrowed the area of disagreement. Because, Philip, you, you know that I, I'm, I'm as one with you on, on a lot of this stuff. So first, I think given your invocation of the concerns about uh, Congress acting outside of this uh, perimeter, um, about uh, the impropriety of bills of attainder and, and doing things out, uh, outside the strict boundaries that you've identified, why are you a friend of censure? Where does that power come from? Because I'm skeptical about censure, except insofar as it's actually, in effect, lesser included within impeachment. But I think Congress would be outrageous if they tried to censure Akhil Amar by name or Andy Lipka by name. I'm more open to the idea that they could censure Philip Bobbitt by name because Philip Bobbitt actually has been an officer of the United States and, and nominated by the president and, and the rest. And little old Akhil and little old Andy, that hasn't happened. I'm teasing you a little bit, but I'm also praising you um, um, because you are a former officer in a way that I haven't been. But, but where does Congress get the power to generally censure anyone it wants? It seems to me on your premises, Bill of Attainer premises, that should be deeply problematic. I think that's a very good point. We have examples of censure in the past, but you could say that those uh, have to do with the power of each of the houses to set the, set the, uh, set the limits of their own membership. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the House censuring I, House I guess, members, the Senate censuring Senate yeah, members. Precisely. Uh, Joe or, McCarthy. Or both, houses, or both houses censuring the president, Andrew Jackson. Who was subject to impeachment uh, at the time. He was a sitting president. Right. Right, absolutely. And so the question really becomes, if uh, we can censure those people while they are in office, do the same restrictions apply to censure that apply to impeachment? We can't censure uh, former uh, office holders. That's the question. And, and I, I, guess, I guess the difference is that the case for censure, which is a criticism of, of acts, of what someone has done, uh, seems to me more um, more latitudinarian. It seems to me that you have more scope for censure, which is a sharp criticism. By name, by name of one person. Oh, that that I don't love that at all, Philip. In general, well, it, it's not it's not the imposition of of a penalty. It's not removing someone from office. It's not disqualifying them from office. Right. It's saying they've done something that you wish to condemn. But, 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 but neither it's like it, the sense of the Senate. It's not a joint resolution. It's not a statute. But, it's like a sense of the Senate resolution. It is, but here's two things. In those respects, it's no different than conviction without disqualification or without removal. And indeed, in one respect, our position is better because we don't get, we, we, we call censure conviction and nothing more And because we are not pushing in our op-ed for disqualification and he can't be removed. But, but in our model, first of all, it's done within the impeachment process um, with all, uh, all sorts of due process and regularity and only after a trial where he and his lawyers get to make their case and with evidence and all the rest. Oh, and in our view, it shouldn't count unless it's two-thirds of the Senate. Whereas on Phillips' latitarian, uh, latitudinarian view, oh. actually, and, and by the way, I wish I'd come up with that point, truthfully, but you know who came up with that point in a conversation with me when I was describing to him your position? That's Dr. Lipka who came up with that point, and I don't know what your uh, answer is, but, but, but I'd love to hear your answer to that. 
Well, I, I'm not sure I quite understood the question. Put it to me again, Akil. That um, uh, in, if we would say, we, what you're calling censure, we call mere conviction. Conviction by the Senate after the Senate trial under Article 1, Section 3. They convict him. That's the judgment. Um, we don't want. We don't want disqualification. Removal is a, 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 a moot point. It's me, uh, the the censure is the conviction itself, the judgment, the punishment, the disgrace. But on our view, actually, that is doesn't operate unless you get two thirds of the Senate. Um, whereas mere censure, on your view, only requires a simple majority of the Senate, and um, and and you don't even need to, the House involved. And they could censure the, the, uh, Donald Trump, the House for one reason, and the Senate for another reason, or something. I so mean, I think the notion right. is that that censure would be sort of a lesser included, uh, you know, ty- type of uh, of finding. But nevertheless, it would still be subject to the two-thirds procedural requirements of impeachment. It would have the imprimatur of, of, of the Senate. And the safeguards, the procedural safeguards of a trial with evidence and, and, and lawyers and all the rest. So why wouldn't, you know, so, so on your view, why should a mere majority of the Senate be able, because uh, you and I agree they shouldn't be able to censure Akhil Amar or Andy Lipka, um, and, but you're saying maybe ex-officers, okay, like, like you, but by, by simple majority. And how is that connected, um, you know, uh, uh, protected? Because once you say Akil can't be censured and Andy can't be censured, you're invoking, in effect, the impeachment process, even as you're talking about censure. Well, for one thing, um, the uh, historical examples we have of censure were done by a majority vote. Mm-hmm. But but one of them they were, was they were not done pursuant to to the impeachment process. But, but one of them was expunged, Andy Jackson, and the others we agreed were pursuant to very different provisions. The House um, censuring House members, which mm-hmm. is Article One, Section Five, Senate censuring Senate members. Each House has the ability to up uh, to scold and and punish um, its uh, its its own members. So those are different. But but but. Uh, when you're talking about what other um, hi- historical precedent is there for censuring of an officer or ex-officer? Yeah. Well, I think those are the examples I had in mind. The censuring of an officer would be uh, the Jackson... Which was expunged. A, which was expunged. Well, well, the fact it was expunged doesn't mean... <laughs> the fact it was expunged doesn't mean that uh, there was a, not a... Const- it wasn't expunged because there was no constitutional basis for it happening in the first place. So I guess the question is, why was it expunged from Andrew Jackson? Here I turn over to my historian. Uh, 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 um, So uh, they did rip it out of the, (laughs) I think Andrew Jackson wanted them to tear it out of the books in in some uh, way. So um, uh, uh, um, let me actually turn, because the truth is I don't know all the details of that um, uh, expungement. Um, But let me, since we're talking about precedents, we've narrowed the area of disagreement quite a lot between you and me. Once you say the trial is okay, and you're okay even with at the end of this thing called a trial, the Senate taking a vote of condemnation. You would call it censure. You know, I would call it a vote on conviction. But as long as it went no further, the disagreement between you and me, you know, would be pretty narrow. I think, you know, someone was asked, you know, what the difference between the cherubim and the seraphim were. And they said, well, there used to be one, but I think they, you know, they they, they They made it up. They made it up. Exactly. They got together. They got together. Exactly. So, um, so, um, but, but you and I do read the early precedents differently. 
Um, so um, I'm going to read you a couple of passages um, with your permission um, and get your reactions to um, uh, 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 a few early comments um, on um, some of these issues. One of the arguments that lots of people make, I make it, Andy makes it, lots of others do, is, gee, um, you don't want to allow someone who's a, an officer who is being impeached while in office um, to uh, um, escape five minutes before the gavel comes down, um, either in the uh, House. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me interrupt you a second. That's a, that's a great point. That's the, the sort of loophole argument that I think is swaying a lot of people. But before we leave censure, yes. let me just say that um, Charles supports censure. And um, he refers to it as the use of the concurrent resolution, which I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And by Charles, you mean Charles Black. Right. As a means of expressing formally the convictions and intentions of the Congress. Mm -hmm. So a vote of censure that does not carry any penalty with it, that is not subject to presentment, but expresses the, the sense of either one or both of the houses, seems to me appropriate and uh, and I just introduced my old friend and mentor Black uh, as having uh, reached that conclusion back in 1974. But you and I would n- leave. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, but you and I would never even countenance that if um, this joint resolution or whatever else they want to call it um, condemned Correct. Andy Lipka or Akhil Amar by name as purely private citizens, right? I don't. I want to think along and hard about it. Um, is there any private citizen that the sense of one of the or both of the houses could? It's a non-binding resolution, has no legal consequences. It's not a law. Does have any any penalties or punishments attached to it? Oh, right. Well, a concurrent resolution is, does not have a force of law. Uh, it has no no legal consequences. It's a statement of the sense of the Senate. Now, so is there any private person I could think of? I don't know. Uh, uh, Kim Il-sung or, or, or ah, so, Kim Jong-il. Or yes, someone. so I do have the view, Philip, that um, uh, Americans are very different than non-Americans and especially foreign heads of state. And I have that view because you helped me see that declaring war is a juridical act. It's almost a judicial act of sorts, and you can declare war against an individual foreign prince and the like. So, yeah. yes, you can... Con- I, I'm not going to object if they condemn uh, Kim Jong-un uh, 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 or Kim Jong-un or anything, or, or Mao or Ho or Fidel. Um, uh-huh. I'm objecting if they think, you know, and they're supposed to work for me. I'm, a, I'm an American citizen, okay. sovereign citizen. If they try to criticize me because they don't like my haircut or my latest book, I would say, how dare you? You are acting yeah. beyond the scope of your proper authority. And, and that, a question is whether you agree with me on that. I'm not sure I do. I want to think about it, Akil. Uh, to tell you the truth, I can't think of anyone living uh, who had never been uh, never voluntarily taken up an office who should be censured. I want to think about it. I don't know the answer to that. I know there are probably people today who would like to see persons in the past, uh, Jefferson Davis, uh, uh, censured. Uh, uh, And, of course, you couldn't 
uh, impeach a, a, a convicted. Well, he was a senator, so they might be able to do it um, based on... Well, but that's true. He was. That's right. Um, uh, so, Philip, so let me... Let, let, um, I don't know. Oh. But, 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 my, but the bottom line is on censure. Um, I, because it's a concurrent resolution, because it does not have the force of law, because no penalties attached, I don't think it runs afoul of the Bill of Attainder, nor do I think it is an inference from impeachment. The question has to be your question, Akil. Okay, fine, Philip. Where does the power come from? Yes, because you, you're, you're the, underneath all of your textual arguments are a larger, um, very powerful idea that we don't want Congress just to be able to, to do things beyond what's been delegated uh, to Congress by the Constitution. Uh, one early precedent and one early pronouncement. Um, and so I just want to uh, tell you, yeah. our audience my take and make sure that you get your um, response in. There was a fellow, um, I, I mispronounced it, I call him William Blount. What? Uh, yeah, you, 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 you were there. I'm younger. Uh, so you tell me it's blunt, and I, I take your word for it. Um, and he was a senator at one point, and he was expelled from the Senate, and, um, right. and the House tried to, and then the House impeached him, and in his trial before the Senate, um, there were a couple of arguments made that as a senator, he's not an officer, and thus not impeachable, um, and um, subject to Senate trial and conviction, and I think that's correct. And and um, uh, uh, but a, uh, uh, another um, argument was um, that he's no longer in office. And um, and here's what the lawyers on both sides, kind of focusing on the issue, said. They they both had a certain intuition, which lots of people have today. And in fact, Andy and I have it as well. That um, someone who's in office and subject to impeachment um, shouldn't be able to escape 10 seconds before the impeachment gavel comes down in the House or the, the sentencing gavel, uh, the conviction gavel, comes down the uh, in the Senate, shouldn't be able to just say, I resign 15 seconds before those gavels come down. Shouldn't be able to yeah. say, yeah. and therefore um, I'm, I'm free from uh, uh, conviction because I'm now an ex-officer. And, and um, lots of people have said this, um, and it is one of uh, the arguments that Andy and I do agree with. Uh, I just wanted to say, in the Blunt impeachment, both the House prosecutor and Blunt's own defense attorney seem to say, of course that's right. So let, let me just read you one version of, of uh, uh, this episode from 1799. Um, and Mr. Bayard says, I apprehend no subsequent event grounded on the willful act or caused by the delinquency of the party can vitiate or obstruct the proceeding. Otherwise, the party, the, 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 the officer, by resignation um, might secure his impunity. This is w against one of the sagest maxims of the law, which does not allow a man to derive a benefit from his own wrong. Um, so he says, we can't let someone just by his own cleverly timed resignation, you know, escape uh, the, the verdict of the Senate uh, the, um, and the judgment of the Senate. Um, and here's what the defense attorney, a man named Dallas, says. Um, he says, um, I sure, certainly shall never contend that an officer may first commit an offense and afterwards avoid punishment by resigning his office. 
another version of that is no man um, uh, ought to avail himself of any advantage from his voluntary resignation of his office. And th- the way they say it, like, of course that follows. It's so, it's so obvious and fundamental. And I just wanted to get your take on those um, pronouncements. I think there are three points to be made. The first one has to do with, and the least important, I think, with the extent to which the positions of advocates in a criminal trial or in a trial of impeachment determines the presidential value of the acquittal. And I assume the answer is zero. They don't at all. Uh, The uh, second point to be made is, in the Blunt case, it is unclear uh, as to whether or not uh, the decision not to go forward with the conviction was because he wasn't a civil officer because he uh, was a member of the Congress or whether he wasn't a civil officer because he had resigned. The third point I'd make is that, well, I think there's uh, a good deal of... uh, moral merit uh, in saying someone shouldn't escape uh, penalties by resigning. Of course, it happens with some frequency. In fact, we often negotiate uh, resignations uh, in exchange for lower penalties or or no penalties. It underestimates, I think, the impact of a resignation in disgrace for what was a sitting politician. Remember that if he's resigned, he can't be removed. So the only conceivable remaining penalty would be to disqualify him from further office. It was never discussed, as far as I'm aware, in any of the uh, cases in which someone uh, withdrew before uh, being convicted that uh, disqualification was still on the table. And... I think that may not be for any particular moral reason, but for the simple reason that if someone in office, some politician resigns in disgrace, uh, they have taken a, a, a huge step. When I see the discussions in the media about this, and by some of our colleagues, they make it sound as though a resignation like President Nixon's is really just a walk in the park, and that any politician who was afraid of being uh, convicted, uh, who probably stood no chance of disqualification. That's, that's only happened three times in the 20 impeachments that were, uh, that, that were ever brought, or the eight that were ever successful. But any politician holding an office would think to himself, this isn't too bad, it'll be a one-week item in the newspapers, and then I can go back and run again. <laughs> that that seems to be very fanciful. Um, so the Nixon resignation is an example. Of that. Uh, my my last point is, uh, I guess a fourth point is, just as a practical matter, I wonder if we really want to disincentivize resignations and put the country through impeachment trials and and uh, and convictions if the miscreant is willing to resign in disgrace. Um, so, Philip, we, I know you ha- we don't have lots of time, so let me um, make a quick response to that and get your res- um, reaction to one more um, early historical pronouncement. So, my qu- uh, two quick responses to that are, one, 
that um, even if what the advocates say doesn't count for a lot as a matter of precedent, um, they do tell us a lot about um, founding era understandings when both lawyers say, of course you can't escape judgment by resignation. And the defense lawyer even says that in part to curry favor with the senators. That tells us something about at least what he thinks senators will think is plausible and not and, and reasonable and not. And when they, it's not just that they say it, but they say, of course it would be outrageous and monstrous. Just seems interesting to me, just a straw in the wind, but something. Um, um, second, um, uh, in my view, it's not just about, and, and Andy's too, disqualification or removal. It's about just the judgment itself, both the Senate saying, finding, as a matter of fact, this actually happened, and we, and we find it, and this is actually unacceptable um, for the future, setting down a marker, a declaratory judgment, if you will, um, which, again, is not so different from censure, because like, even on your view, oh, resignation doesn't spare him censure. So you see, your views and, and ours are pretty similar, given your, your censure idea. It's the, it's the same thought. Well, even if you've resigned in, in Bobbitt land, you're still subject to possible censure. And censure, again, is, in effect, an implicit finding of fact and a marker for the future that this is unacceptable. So again, I think the differences between us are, are more narrow um, than... Uh, I think the differences between us are more narrow. Yes. But haven't you read people in the last few weeks say that to permit a resignation uh, or the clock to run out in the last few days of, of a closing administration is a is illogical? That's what Chuck Cooper said just the other day, with great effect. Uh, he said that it would be illogical to allow a person to escape a conviction and possible disqualification uh, if he was if he was no longer in office because he's arranged his own resignation now it may be many things it may be unwise for the incentive reasons we've discussed it may be um, it may be unwise because as you and Andy put it you want to make us make a statement about condemning something which as you say can be done by censure also but the one thing is not is illogical Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you that as long as you say uh, that we have good reasons for not wanting these folks to get away with it. But let me just... Well, I also think that it's important to distinguish between resignation uh, in disgrace and resignation as strategy. You know, Trump, uh, you know, his refusal to accept uh, blame, to, to, you know, admit that he lost, you know, and so forth, a lot of that is what's on trial here, you know, lying to the American people. If he doesn't say, you know, mea culpa, then the resignation is merely strategic and, should, and he should not be able to escape punishment on that basis. Well, I think that's right, but I don't think that the, we're talking about Trump, I don't think the only punishment on the table is, um, is disqualifying from future office. In the first place, there's a statutory basis for disqualifying him from running for future office, which Akil knows about 2284, something like 84, 18 U.S.C. 2384. And in the second place, there are two criminal statutes of which that is one that can put him away. <laughs> one of them has a sentence of 20 years. The other of 10 years in prison. If you listen to the testimony today, I don't see how. And of course, I 
I haven't heard contrary factual presentations from the defense, but it almost seems to me to track the language of someone who has conspired to prevent, hinder, delay the execution of any law of the United States. I mean, uh, I learned today, maybe you two already knew it, that uh, President Trump moved the date of the demonstration from just after the inauguration to the 6th, the day that the electoral votes were going to be accounted and uh, certified. And I learned today, for the first time, that the Trump White House, uh, presumably with Trump's uh, authority, uh, changed the permit to move it from a restriction to the ellipse to allow it, the march to go to the Capitol. Now, putting those two things together, it's hard, to, and all the other testimony, it's hard to imagine that there isn't a prima facie case that the president uh, conspired to prevent, hinder, or delay, stop the steal of the execution of the Electoral Control Act. Philip, I'm going to switch gears. Electoral Count Act. Uh, Philip, I'm going to switch gears and just give you a chance to respond to one other snippet, and it's only a snippet of historical uh, evidence that that actually I found interesting, not decisive. I actually agreed with it. It moved me for the substance of the the argument. It's not from the founding era, but it does come from someone who who was connected to the founding era, John Quincy Adams. It's going to be John Quincy Adams, isn't it? Yes, um, uh, from the <laughs> late 1840s. I just want to read you the quote because um, I've never got a I chance to... I've not, okay, so let me read it to our audience and just get your uh-huh. re- reactions to, uh, to it. Um, and he says, I differ from the gentleman from Virginia who, who says that the day of impeachment has passed by the Constitution from the moment the public office expires. I, John Quincy Adams, hold no such doctrine. I hold myself, so long as I have breath of life in my body, amenable to impeachment by this house for everything I did during the time I held any public office. And then Bailey says, is not the judgment in case of impeachment removal from office? Very similar to, um, uh, and, and now here's JQA's response. And I just want to read it for a couple of, of sentences, maybe a paragraph or so, and then get your response. Adam says, and disqualification to hold any office of honor, trust, or profit in the United States forever afterwards, a punishment much greater, in my opinion, than removal from office. Um, It clings to a man as long as he lives, and if any public officer ever put himself in a position to be tried by impeachment, he would have very little of my good opinion if he did not think disqualification from holding office for life a more severe punishment than mere removal from office. Okay, fine, do you agree with that or not? Because um, we're not so keen, Danny and yeah. I, on disqualification. But here, I hold, therefore, that every president of the United States, every secretary of state, every officer impeachable by the laws of the country is as liable 20 years after his office has expired as he is whilst he continues in office. And if such is not the case, um, if an officer could thus ward off the pains of impeachment, you know, what would be the value, blah, blah, and he goes on. But, but that sentence seems to me to be really pretty emphatic, that once impeachable, always impeachable. Yeah. I, I, I would qualify that in two dimensions. But one, the historical context 
I think is very illustrative here. One problem we had in sorting out what was actually decided in the Blunt case was that there was not clarity at the time, although these were, as you say, the founding generation, about just who was a civil officer and whether or not members of the House and Senate were civil officers. Now, we think there's a good deal more clarity about this now, but you have the problem of the Succession Act to the presidency that seems mm -hmm. to reintroduce this unclarity. But when John Quincy Adams is speaking, it's not so clear. And I think you cannot ignore the fact that when he spoke, he was a member of the House, and the person whose impeachment was being considered was a senator. I, I just don't think you can overlook that. That seems to me to greatly uh, qualify the statement. Having said that, I think the other problem is that even with a figure as uh, important in our history as John Quincy Adams, his opinion about his own personal honor doesn't carry as much weight with me as Joseph Story's opinion, which you're quite familiar with, that a former civil officer cannot be uh, convicted, impeached and convicted. Uh, these are statements by people we admire, uh, and they have an, an very important, what I have always called, expressive function. But they're not constitutional arguments. And uh, Adams' expression, I suppose, uh, has to be limited by that. Philip, this is great. Our um, audience is getting a, 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 to witness kind of constitutional poker in action, and you know, and, 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 and the question is, you know, whether story, you know, you got story, I got J John Quincy Adams, you know, who, who, which is the higher face card um, in, in 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 this constitutional poker, and you could make an argument either way. Story is a very great scholar. Um, uh, and uh, but I think he actually is much less emphatic than John Quincy Adams. Adams himself is a president and a son of a president, and I think is mm -hmm. more emphatic. But um, you're absolutely right that that those don't answer the question at all. They're just interesting, and for me, they're especially interesting, not as textual argument because this isn't what the Constitution says, not even as historical argument. This is 50 years after the founding, both Story and John Quincy yeah. Adams, but they are evidence, um, or they're, they're interesting evidence of smart lawyers wrestling with the same issues that you and I are many years later and not quite coming to complete agreement on this, but I'm always interested in, like, what are their premises? How do they argue? And when um, some people say, well, of course this and of course that, that's interesting to me as opposed to say, well, I think this, but it's very close. So, so um, uh, and, and in this conversation, in this podcast, honestly, Philip, we have narrowed the difference very considerably, because you are now on record as, uh, uh, unless you want us to cut it out, as, as, and we will if you, if you do, we'll edit it out. You're on record as saying the trial should go forward. Oh, I think the trial uh, can go forward, and in this instance, it should go forward. Great. Welcome, know, well, welcome aboard. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, as a, as a citizen, um, you know, I also look to uh, what I see as the purpose uh, behind impeachment, 
and so forth, and whether whether it's a legitimate purpose and whether it's being fulfilled. And I think you, you know you bring up an excellent point that we do have an interest in not having Congress starting to attainder you know people left and right. Um, I, I do think that it's a fairly limited population when you're dealing with with ex-officers, so I don't think we're worried about a metastasis of, of attainder here. Right, right but, but it, that's easy for you and for me to say, Andy, because yes. we've never been officers. Correct. Philip, it's, Philip a, it, it's, a, officer. it's a little yes. different for him. <laughs> I understand, but uh, nevertheless, we're, we're, we're pleased to put you in jeopardy. Um, but, um, but I do think that, you know, after, uh, and, you know, what you watched over the last couple of days, what, you know, the American people have watched, um, I do think that there, we... We don't want to be denied uh, the ability to review Donald Trump's behavior as president. And a court of law, quite frankly, is not going to be uh, you know, the same sort of forum to, to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, the you know, sort of quasi-judicial uh, uh, function of Congress was designed for this very event, putting aside the officer or ex-officer issue. If you put that aside, what could be a, a more crucial forum for impeachment than this? It's a, the judgment of the nation. It's, um, the, the House is a truly national grand jury. The Senate is um, representing all localities, whereas in the criminal prosecution that Philip was envisioning, it's a grand jury from one locality. It's a trial jury from one little vicinage. Every president, and Philip... I, I won't embarrass him, but he knows a lot about the presidency, having worked in many administrations and having grown up actually spending time in the White House. Um, but every president does things that are going to be deeply unpopular in one part of the country or Somewhere, another. Absolutely. Uh, and that's yeah. why I prefer the judgment of the Senate of the United States in some ways about what's proper and improper behavior, all the more so because a lot of these guys want to be presidents themselves. So they, I, I want them to set markers about what's proper going forward. Um, I, Phil, Andy and I call that conviction. You're calling that censure. But um, if, if it's not followed by disqualification, those things converge to a considerable extent, Philip. I frankly wish well, that... No, please. I want to, please. No, and you first, please. Well, thank you. But I, I wish, in a way, that that disqualification were taken off the table because I believe then we could actually get a vote of conscience... Uh, rather than, uh, and I think that would be powerful um, for, and, and healing for this nation, uh, which is why we made this uh, proposal regarding the ex-presidents, because I believe that they would testify in a relatively apolitical manner. It would be a, an elevating uh, spectacle for the nation, a civic education we sorely need. And f for those reasons, I, I, you know, I would like to see disqualification off the table because I don't, I don't see any way that we'll get a, an honest vote with it on the table. Well, I, I see your point. One point I should probably emphasize before we, we bring this to a close is, in Trump's case, he was validly impeached. He was impeached within the four corners of Article 2, Section 4. I'm not suggesting that you could have a trial of someone who was not validly impeached. 
Yes, and, and, yes. Sure and, 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 and that, listeners may not right, and that may, that, and, 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 and Philip will do that on another podcast because I do think we, you and I have slightly different views about that, and maybe our views on that are don't converge quite so so closely. So you're going to have to come back. Yes, but he's he wanted to clarify the record, and he has done so. All right, thank you, fellows. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks, pal. Thanks, wonderful. Bye. Bye. So that was really wonderful. Uh, Professor Bobbitt is so learned, and and uh, you know he had a very strongly held position, but he certainly was fair-minded in that discussion. Um, he's a very brave person. Uh, his political views are not always the same as his uh, legal views, uh, and and this is an important modification of his position. He's moving in our direction, Andy. And um, um, and one problem in America is too few Americans are ever willing to rethink anything. This podcast is actually about conversation, about uh, testing positions and, and sometimes modifying positions when you hear a really good formulation of the counter-argument. Um, I actually think that Philip's position and ours are much closer together now than they were um, a, two days ago um, when Nina Totenberg came up with uh, that uh, um, uh, broadcast. Um, his position now, at least for Trump, who was in office when impeached by the House of Representatives, his position is, oh, you can have a trial, um, and its purpose is in part to edify and inform the American people, uh, but they're just it just can't proceed to a conviction. Um, but there can be a censure at the end of it. And our position, and, and he doesn't love disqualification. Our position is we don't love disqualification either. Um, and, of course, removal isn't an issue because the guy's already been removed. Um, but we say there should be a trial. A trial should edify, agreed, Philip, but it should actually allow at the end a conviction. That's what trials are all about. Trial and then a verdict, a judgment, a conviction, um, which itself is a censure, and censure isn't in the Constitution, but conviction is. And indeed, Andy, you told me a specific point about the word conviction. Yeah, I mean, Philip was saying that, you know, Article 2 is where it talks about, you know, what actually can happen in terms of uh, uh, the president can be removed and so forth. But in Article 1, you know, it actually talks about conviction. It mentions conviction on several occasions. Very interesting indeed. Now, um, um, I'm reminded of this song that um, from uh, my misguided youth. I think it's by Howard Jones. Because the idea of having a trial without the possibility of, of coming to a verdict and a judgment and conviction um, reminds me of this Howard Jones song. Um, uh, I think it's called No One Is to Blame. If, if memory serves, here's how it begins. You can look at the menu, but you just can't eat. You can feel the cushion, but you can't have a seat. You can dip your foot in the pool, but you can't have a swim. I'm thinking, you can have a trial, but there's no verdict and judgment and conviction? What kind of trial is that? <laughs> Agreed. So I think Howard Jones has the answer today. But thank you to Philip Bobbitt, and thank you, Akeem. You can feel the cushions, but you can't have a seat. You can dip your foot in the pool, but you can't have a swim. Punishment, but you can't commit the sin And you want her And she wants you We want everyone 
bang.